So uh, it's nice to see everybody here. and Welcome to the fourth annual Swink Lecture, Swink Scottish Writing in the 19th Century, kind of all-embracing program uh, for research and for public lectures that we have at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Penny Fielding, and I'm one of the directors of Swink. This year, our fourth annual lecture, we're once again sponsored by the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and we thank them for their continuing support for Swink and for our edition of Stevenson, which is ongoing. This year's lecture is also part of the Department of English's 250th anniversary, which you see on the slides there. Uh, Stevenson was, of course, an alumnus of this university. However, his time seems to have been spent not entirely in academic pursuits. He characterises it as infinite yawnings during the lecture, unquenchable gusto and the delights of truantry. If only he'd studied English literature, <laughs> not engineering and law, as he unfortunately chose to do, because, of course, there's no yawning in lectures in English literature. To talk to us about Stevenson tonight, we're very lucky to have a very distinguished speaker, Professor Roger Luckhurst from Birkbeck University of London. Many of you will already know Roger from his edition in the World's Classic series of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's written on literature and science, fin de siècle, on Gothic fiction... Among his many books are included The Invention of Telepathy, Oxford 2002, Science Fiction in the Cultural History of Literature, published by Polity, and The Trauma Question, Routledge 2008. And uh, we all have to look forward to The Mummy's Curse, which, so far from being a work of popular fiction, as I'd hoped, is in fact uh, a, a cultural study of the um, fan- of mummy curse fantasies in Victorian literature. So I shall now pass you over to Roger Luckhurst. Thanks, Penny. Well, um, uh, thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, It's always a delight to come up to Edinburgh. Last time I was here, it was minus 15, and uh, I got stuck. Um, But it's a beautiful day today. when I um, was talking to one of my colleagues uh, a couple of days ago, um, I mentioned that I was coming up to, um, to Edinburgh to talk about Stevenson, and they just looked completely astonished. They just said, you're talking about Stevenson in Edinburgh? You absolute idiot. <laughs> and it is quite a foolhardy thing to do, and you might notice that I adopt some evasion tactics in this uh, following talk, um, but I do hope that you find something uh, useful and interesting in it. Well, my interest in the 19th century supernatural has always been about the strange flowerings that take place between official and unofficial discourse, where knowledge meets rumour, science meets anecdote or fiction, and typically where Gothic literature bleeds beyond the boundaries of its own textual borders to generate odd, temporary, hybrid types of knowledge that exist in a strange borderland beyond the bounds of fiction. It leaves me interested in the space of superstition, that hesitant zone where beliefs are at once disavowed and yet constantly and lovingly rehearsed. This was a phenomenon intensified by the various attempts to render explorations of the supernatural a scientific inquiry in the late Victorian period, the era that saw the emergence of psychical research alongside and fully imbricated with advances in energy physics, electrical communication technologies, and new kinds of psychological theory. 
The Society for Psychical Research competed with spiritualist psychology, studies in trance and somnambulism, the synthesis of science and religion in theosophy, occultism and hermetic study, as well as spooked archaeology in the tombs of Egypt and various anthropologies of folklore and magic. All this created a heady atmosphere in which the late Victorian Gothic revival became merely one of the figures in the carpet in which the natural and the supernatural became intimately and often confoundingly intertwined. <coughs> in this respect, it is no surprise that I continually return as a primary instance of this hybridization to Stevenson's strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde is one of those Stevenson texts that has become, as Penny Fielding has noted rather ruefully, as if disembodied from their author. The story is now so embedded in popular culture and other critic states that it hardly exists as a work of literature. It conforms to the analysis that Chris Baldick long ago made of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in, in its passage from bounded literary text to unbounded and uncontrolled myth, successively manipulated and modified according to context. Such culture texts, as Brian Rose has called them, extends so far beyond the, origi the original that the text is only ever encountered as secondary, startling in its variations from the very myths it has fostered. And that's certainly how most of my students first experienced Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde, as a textual variant on a pre-existent myth. Certain texts, it is clear, act as founders of discursivity, to quote Foucault, because they isolate and concretize something in simple, memorable, and manipulable motifs. The question is often less how the text is read and more how the cultural work its motifs are recruited to do. So what I want to do today is investigate how Jekyll and Hyde became and continues to be what one historian of science helpfully terms an informal object in the discourse of psychology. The famous London Times review that established the reputation of Stevenson's Gothic gnome, as he called it, at the end of January 1886, called it a flash of intuitive psychological research, already locating it in a zone where orthodox psychology, unorthodox psychical research, the insight of literature, and the primal urges of Gothic myth-mongering shaded into each other. And Oscar Wilde, of course, famously said, in The Decay of Lying, that Jekyll and Hyde read too much, like an article in, the paper, in, in a paper from The Lancet. But if psychologists almost immediately latched onto Jekyll and Hyde, this was not a simple instrumentalization of the text, for, as Stevenson scholars know, the author consistently engaged with contemporaneous writings on psychology, and that he was absorbed in speculations of the encrypted basis of the moral self. Indeed, literary critics have been driven into a rather frenzied ransacking of psychological journals of the 1870s and 1880s in the search for an elusive original psychological case study that might have inspired Stevenson's own strange case. This follows Fanny Stevenson's typically infuriating off-the-cuff comment in her 1905 preface to the tale that one of the key inspirations for Jekyll and Hyde was that, to quote her, my husband 
was deeply impressed by a paper in a French scientific journal on subconsciousness, full stop. Annoying scholarly vagueness. Cue frantic page-turning, convinced claim and counterclaim. The compulsion to research into the history of psychology for the absent levers of the fiction is another result of the taunting gaps and absences in Jekyll and Hyde that send Stevenson's readers into interpretive frenzy, making them a rather interesting case study of their own. Rather than get caught up in this, although I will get caught up in this, I'm going to work backwards, beginning with how Jekyll and Hyde has been used in psychology to help fix down in contemporary writing two highly unstable and controversial categories of mental illness, schizophrenia and multiple personality, before heading back into the complex matrix of the competing psychologies that swirl through Stevenson's text. The American psychologist Granley Stan Gran Granville Stanley Hall was one of the key theorists of adolescence as a critical phase in development. He was worryingly obsessed with girls' development. And the man who famously invited Sigmund Freud to America in 1909. Stanley Hall was a prominent figure in the American public sphere, and in 1916, he was interviewed by the Washington Post. In the course of his interview, Hall was one of the first people to use the newly coined term schizophrenia in the English language. Schizophrenia, Hall is quoted as explaining, is a term much used by psychologists to describe a divided mind, of which the Jekyll and Hyde personality is one type. Schizophrenia, a coinage from the Greek meaning split mind, had been introduced by the German psychologist E.F. Bleuler in his 1911 text, snappily titled, Dementia Precox or the Group of Schizophrenias. Hall had many connections to Bleuler, who worked in the German asylum system, and Germany was still considered the home of properly rigorous experimental psychology, and consequently, where many early Anglo-American psychologists trained. The title of Bleuler's study was a bold attempt to shift the nosology of this form of psychosis from the developmental degeneration or decline associated with dementia, dementia praecox, itself only recently introduced as a category of psychosis, and move it towards a different, allegedly more objective criteria. It was part of a general movement of reclassification of mental illnesses in the 1910s, which dismantled much of the apparatus of the Victorian taxonomies of hysteria. Bloiler's own term, schizophrenia, far from clarifying the taxonomy of mental illness, has proved to be a notoriously unstable category, or open to constantly shifting definitions, expanding and contracting, and the most frequent targets of arguments about the social construction of madness. So we know that R.D. Lang in the 60s and 70s and Thomas Satz uh, in the 70s argued that it did not exist at all, that it was a pure social construction. As the historian Kieran McNally has shown, Bloiler was interested in the general splitting of psychic functions and barely mentioned the notion of split personality at all. And yet this was the rare and occasional symptom that rapidly shifted from an accessory symptom to become the dominant way of defining the illness. 
In America, the popular notion of schizophrenia was consolidated in the sensational murder trial of Leopold and Loeb in 1924, the case which became the basis for the stage play and later Hitchcock film, Rope. During the trial, the thesis that Richard Loeb suffered a pathological split personality, a Jekyll and Hyde personality, was the opinion of one of the many competing expert psychological witnesses. By the 1930s, the association of schizophrenia, split personality, and Jekyll and Hyde was firmly established. Abraham Lincoln was diagnosed as a schizoid Jekyll and Hyde personality in 1931, and the bizarre decision of Rudolf Hess to fly to Scotland in 1941 was also ascribed to his alternating Jekyll and Hyde personality in popular press coverage in 1941. The simplification and reduction into shorthand might serve as an instance of the errors induced by popular diffusion or of technical or professional terminologies into popular culture. Yet psychologists profess themselves extremely bemused by this process. Trevor Turner's tracking of the instability of the meaning of schizophrenia notes, alongside this internal technical development, the popular view of what is meant by schizophrenia has also changed. The notion of a split personality, a Jekyll and Hyde persona, has intruded on the more diffuse Bloilerian construction. How this happened, Turner adds, with bewilderment, is difficult to trace. Already, by the 1950s, professional texts about psychology were trying to correct this mistake and in 1978, Patrick O'Brien noted that if clinicians are somewhat vague and confused in what they call schizophrenia, the general public is even vaguer and more confused and party to an enormous number of superstitions and misunderstandings. Dr. Jekyll, O'Brien confidently explained, was not schizophrenic. Instead, Stevenson's story likely displayed an instance of multiple personality, which had a totally different nosology. Multiple personality is a variety of hysterical or dissociative reaction, O'Brien continued. The splitting in schizophrenia refers to the disorganization of basic mental capacities. Thinking, willing, and feeling are all confused. They are split up. Schizophrenics have trouble enough keeping their own personality intact, let alone two or more. This rival illness, Multiple personality disorder was formally introduced into diagnostic categories of mental illness only as late as 1980. And it is another category in which Jekyll and Hyde has also been intimately associated with throughout its history. Multiple personality, or MPD, is less a psychotic splitting of the mind than a process of dissociation, in which typically a tactic for surviving a traumatic event is to sequester that memory into a separate stream of consciousness, often during moments of severe stress. These sequestered chains of memory were considered in the early years of the development of MPD to be able to develop into separate and sometimes named sub-personalities that were often situated in an amnesiac relationship to each other. This idea of mental dissociation was first developed by Pierre Janet in Paris in the 1880s, although he stopped using the term by 1890. 
It was briefly popular in England and America through the extraordinary case study published by the American psychologist Morton Prince called The Dissociation of a Personality. This book-length study, first published in 1906, a case study, examined the three personalities of a patient called pseudonymously Sally Beecham. In a review of the time, Francis Dyke commented that the book reads like the strangest romance. And perhaps by association, he then continued, it would be very difficult for anyone who believes himself normal to read this book with any other feeling than that perhaps with which he read long ago, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, unless indeed he read that visionary masterpiece with the firm conviction that it was all true. True, to be sure, it was, in the sense that it presented nothing which modern psychical investigation has not proven to exist in actual life. And the case of which this book of Dr. Prince gives the fool's history presents all the strange changes of personality and of character which Mr. Hyde showed different from Dr. Jekyll. That was um, um, a review in 1907. The causation in Dyke's reflections is somewhat circular. Morton Prince's case study has the air of psychological authenticity because it echoes Stevenson's visionary masterpiece. Yet that fiction has impact only to the extent that it conforms to modern psychical investigation. Uh, and one might argue that it presents uh, nothing which hasn't actually been proved uh, by modern psychical investigation. The reference, in other words, to Jekyll and Hyde doesn't explain anything at all. It only reinforces uh, a certain conception. After Morton Prince, multiple personality fell out of use, only to return through the effect of, a ca of case studies that were significantly first offered in fictional form. The Three Faces of Eve uh, was a book that, that was then filmed in 1957 and based on the true case history of Christine Sizemore. And there was a mini TV series called Sybil in 1976, based on a case history by the psychiatrist Cornelia Wilbur that had first appeared in novelized form in 1973 because it proved unpublishable as a straight psychiatric case history. Both of these fictions had major effects on self-diagnosing patients and psychiatrists advocating for the official diagnostic recognition of what became MPD in 1980. The, philosoph the philosopher of science, Ian Hacking, has brilliantly traced the runaway escalation of the diagnosis from 1980, when MPD was considered vanishingly rare, to 1990, when advocates routinely argued that over 10% of the American population were considered to suffer MPD, and that the average number of alter personalities rose to 23. At the very height of this trend, the flagship journal of this psychiatric movement called Dissociation carried an article entitled A Brief Note on Jekyll and Hyde and MPD, resituating the story at the center of definitional and diagnostic work. In 1994, MPD was entirely abandoned as a diagnosis of mental illness by the American Psychiatric Association. No one has multiple personality anymore. 
in recognition that the category had become iatrogenic, that is, a diagnostic label that produces the very cases it seeks to describe and ameliorate. The replacement term is DIDS, Dissociative Identity Disorder, which emphasises once more that it is very rare to develop coherent alter personalities. In other words, that Jekyll and Hyde is only likely to be found in the Gothic tradition of the double rather than in clinical work. The schizophrenic and the multiple are not the only places that the icon of Jekyll and Hyde occurs in psychology. It repeatedly pops up, loosely following diagnostic trends over the decades. Let's leave aside the psychoanalytic tradition of the persecutory double interpreted as inverted narcissism, first theorised by Otto Rank in 1914 and later, of course, feeding into Freud's theory of the uncanny, published in 1919, although Freud favoured reading Ryder Haggard, I think, more than Stevenson. This is a comfortable territory for literary critics, although less so for the discipline of psychology that has largely dispensed with Freud. Um, rather appropriately, my own psychology department has just split in two. Um, psychology and psychosocial studies, and that's where all the therapists are. Um, so let's leave that aside because we know that history uh, um, as literary critics will tend to. In 1966, Benjamin Wallman published a journal article called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a new theory of manic depressive disorder. And that was the, one of the earliest occasions when that particular diagnosis begins to be associated with it. Later, Mick Cooper, who was a follower of the psychotherapeutics of Carl Rogers, published an essay called, If You Can't Be Jekyll, Be Hyde, an existential phenomenological exploration of lived plurality. In it, Cooper peers into the text but seems to discern only a chival glass reflection of his own method. Stevenson's narrative fits perfectly with Rogersian therapeutic insights, which insist on psychical and existential reintegration. Cooper confidently declares, had Dr. Jekyll entered person-centered therapy, the tale might end with a Victorian gentleman increasingly able to actualize his wilder potentialities. In such reductively diagnostic readings, at least as it seems to a mere literary critic, the complex formal framings of Henry Jekyll's full statement of the case and the teasing suspensive status of literary discourse itself are brutally routinized underneath psychotherapeutic language. This is not a problem that can be ascribed to an earlier generation of critics either. In just the last few years, the Psych Articles database reveals that Jekyll and Hyde has been used in the titles of articles that concern deep breath, dual identity of face identification, emotion work in the context of intimate partner violence, personality change following accidents in a piece called From Jekyll to Hyde After Limbic Subthalamic Nuclear Infarction, the grooming of male pornography consumers, pro and antisocial behavior in adolescence, on the difference between work engagement and workaholism, or for personality change through substance abuse. Back to the white powder. Meanwhile, uh, one of my colleagues in medical humanities, Joe Winning, 
uh, also tells me that Jekyll and Hyde has remained a constant reference point in that emergent discipline in undergraduate intercalated courses for medical students where it is used constantly as an example of biomedical science as a driver of unethical clinical practice as in what causes a clinician to lose ethical perspective. All of these works tell us very little about Stevenson's text but rather a lot about the way in which the Jekyll Hyde cultural icon can be instrumentalized as a condenser or a placeholder in psychiatric discourse. Kieran McNally's study of the Jekyll and Hyde trope in the history of schizophrenia is actually very admirable in veering away from regarding this as a history of error, of, of a mistake, uh, of a problem, in other words, of elite knowledge being popularized or simplified when diffused beyond alleged experts. Instead, he concludes that the Jekyll and Hyde icon was generated, maintained, and reinforced from within the, the culture of the psychological professions, paradoxically because the myth extracted from the fiction was a way of stabilizing problematic new categories or definitions. In an allied way, Jekyll and Hyde is an instance of what Ian Hacking calls dynamic nominalism, a way of making up people, as he puts it, in psychiatric discourse. People classified in a certain way, Hacking argues, tend to conform or grow into the way they are described, perhaps especially so in the unequal psychiatric encounter so bound up with suggestion, authority, and transference. Name a category and a set of symptoms and patients grow into that description. This is what happens at such an accelerated rate with MPD and the multiplication of alter personalities. That is Hacking's notion of naming, but it's dynamic because it is not simply an imposition or assertion of psychiatric authority. People also, as he puts it, evolve in their own ways so that classifications and descriptions have to be constantly revised. Psychiatric categories therefore emerge in the interactive space between um, doctor and patient. No wonder they need stable cultural reference points to make that process meaningful. Thus, Stevenson's text bleeds from its textual bounds and leaks into the diagnostic frameworks of psychiatry, not in error, but because it provides a stabilization motif. As I suggested at the start though, there must be something in Stevenson's text that fosters this long history of appropriation. The doubling commentary about the double is not a purely opportunistic imposition from outside, but works inside the guardrail of the text. We know that strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde emerges from the same context, struggling with the same competing conceptions of the extended self that were undergoing paradigm shift in philosophy and psychology coextensive with Stevenson's writing career, so between the 1870s and the 1890s. Cultural historical commentary on Stevenson has become much more alert to the elements of psychology that surface in and indeed help shape Stevenson's essays and literary fictions. They exist along a spectrum from 
physiological psychology to the new idiodynamic conceptions just being formulated by competing schools of psychology across Europe from the 1870s. In terms of psychophysiology, a rooting of the mind in the physiology of the brain, it has been well established that Stevenson's thinking about the romance form itself was informed by evolutionary psychology. Um, and there's been very brilliant work by Robert Fraser and Julia Reed uh, on that subject. That the civilized mind was merely the latest and most fragile development in the evolution of the brain that could be easily thrown in sickness, in fever, or insanity, back down the evolutionary ladder, could carry both positive and negative valences in the late Victorian period. Stevenson's Gothic tale, Alala, or in the precise descriptions of Edward Hyde's physiology, there lies the open mark of fears of degeneration, a form of mental decline morally marked on the stunted and savage stigmata of the body. The horrors of indulging moral weakness used in the normative discourse of so-called moral management by alienists and asylum doctors such as Henry Maudsley evidently haunts Stevenson's language. Maudsley spoke about the disintegrations of the ego in body and will, a book that was continually reissued in multiple editions through the 1880s, warning that when an organism has become the seat of a serious morbid growth which lives its own life apart from it, it can no longer be said to have true physiological unity but actively embodies itself in different and hostile unities. This was a conservative and disciplinary conception now well established in a Gothic criticism that has become fully versed, even enamored uh, of late Victorian degeneration theory. But my sense is that Stevenson would also have been informed by the more radical and positive implications of reducing mind to brain that took place in the controversies in Edinburgh's intellectual circles earlier in the century, in the 1820s and 30s, when Edinburgh became one of the leading European intellectual centers for phrenology. George Combe, founder of the Edinburgh Phrenological Society in 1820 and a tireless advocate, embodied, encoded sorry, a radical democratic impetus in the theory and institutions of phrenology popularizing a naturalistic explanation of the self and mind through his best-selling account, The Constitution of Man, which was, uh, as I'm sure you know, one of the most popular accounts of materialist explanations of man published in the 19th century, a book that far outsold Darwin's Origin of Species long into the 1890s. Its democratic implications considered a narrative of religious and class usurpation by traditionalists. The phrenological theory of the localization of brain functions into separate faculties that you could feel uh, in the bumps on the head was also obsessed by the bilateral division of the brain between symmetrical hemispheres, many positing a double brain. And thus, what the influential French psychologist Jean Esquirol called homo duplex. As the phrenological thesis was pushed to the margins uh, by neurological research in the 1840s, the trace of the double brain remained as a strand of physiological psychology. 
Arthur Wiggins' A New View of Insanity, subtitled The Duality of the Mind, proposed that each cerebrum is capable of distinct and separate volition, and that these are often very opposing volitions. Wigan spoke of a case of, to quote him, a very intelligent and amiable man who had the power of placing before his eyes himself, and often laughed heartily at his double, who always seemed to laugh in turn. But he became gradually convinced that he was haunted by himself. This other self would argue with him pertinaciously and, to his great mortification, refute him. A situation that eventually resulted in suicide. This case, published in 1844 in the wake of psychologist Henry Holland's theory of the double brain, might offer itself as another fantasy of origin for Stevenson's strange case, were it not that Anne Harrington's whole history of this idea, medicine, mind and the double brain, from which my quote derives, reads like it unfolds teleologically towards Jekyll and Hyde, a text she provokingly only passingly mentions. If psychophysiology often reads doubleness in terms of mental disaggregation or moral dissolution, it was also possible to regard the unhooking of mind from the iron logic of evolutionary development in positive terms. Thus, as we know from essays like Pastoral and A Gossip on Romance, Stevenson regarded the romance as a return to an earlier, reinvigorating, primitive form, full of the savage energy that over-refined analytic realism had lost. And he shared that view with the critic Andrew Lang, who encoded a Celtic racial imprint in that um, perception of romance. The children who responded to romance stories similarly were as if at earlier stages of evolutionary development, following the common 19th century belief that ontogeny, individual development, recapitulated phylogeny, the evolution of the species. Here we are on surer ground, since Stevenson was an acquaintance of James Sully through the Savile Club. Sully was a philosopher and essayist at Fortnightly Review, who went off to Germany to train himself in the new experimental psychology and wrote several essays for the Cornhill magazine alongside Stevenson in the 1870s, uh, so they knew each other through Leslie Stephen, before producing a series of psychology textbooks in the 1880s. Sully was an evolutionist, observing that mental illness was a nervous dissolution of the higher intellectual processes that have been most recently evolved. In Madness, he said, we see the process of nervous dissolution beginning with those same nervous structures, so taking the reverse order of the process of evolution. Sully was one of the founding members of the Child Study Association, and in several books on childhood, as the age of dreaming, as he called it, used Stevenson's evocations of childhood, particularly in the poetry of A Child's Garden of Verses, as empirical evidence of the primitive magical thinking of the child. Yet Sully also became particularly interested in illusions, hallucinations, dreams, and other modes of involuntary mental activity, suggesting a larger array of mental automatism than had been previously allowed. 
He recognised that the idea of the persistent self depended on a mnemonic process that might unravel or split, producing the illusion of what he called two sundered selves. Sully then formulated this doubling in a way that has been seized on by Stevenson scholars. The patient, Sully said, when first aware of these changes, is perplexed and often regards the new feelings as making up another self, a foreign two as distinct from the familiar ego. In his memoirs, Sully recalled on a visit to Stevenson's bedside in Skerivore, soon after the publication of Jekyll and Hyde, hearing about Stevenson's claim that his Gothic gnome had emerged in part from a fever dream. A complex exchange then took place between the men. Sully was prompted to contact other novelists to explore the role of dream in the creative process, uh, and it, that included talking to William Dean Howells, who never dreamt, and Henry James, <laughs> who found it useless, um, publishing his findings in the American Review. Very interesting divide there, of course, between romancers and realists. He was also prompted to experiment himself with writing fiction automatically, disarming himself with his astonishing success, even publishing a handful of stories and being very annoyed that they were the largest paid things that he'd ever written, uh, and concluded that, uh, to quote his, his autobiography, the experiment appeared to me confer to confirm the view of Stevenson that, for some novelists at least, the fashioning of a story is largely a subconscious mental process. Um, I think he was very disturbed as well to discover that, in a way, his opinion of Stevenson fell a little because he found his own unconscious so, so, so easy to be able to imitate this method. Stevenson, on his part, was also excited enough on this Scarryville visit to suggest to Sully that he could construct a psychological questionnaire on moral character, as if the romancer were suddenly an empirical researcher in psychology, a scheme he rather typically failed to follow up. A, a, a little later, of course, we know he wrote his chapter on dreams, which became a standard reference point for psychologists of the subliminal mind, quoted over and over again in literature of the 1890s. Sully was a psychologist who existed on a cusp between psychological schemas, trained in psychophysiology, yet sensing the emergence of another paradigm that loosened psychological processes from reductive biological determinism and gave an inner autonomous life to both conscious and subconscious mental processes. Freud's triumphant narrative of psychoanalysis, which he coined in 1896, is that he alone freed psychical processes from the degenerative biological theories of his teachers and peers. Yet there were many different schools in Europe that were beginning to theorize just this. One of the closest readers of Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde was one of the crucial linchpins in these develop developments, tirelessly translating and circulating psychological texts between France, Germany, Britain, and America on this new psychology. This was the psychical researcher and Stevenson devotee, Frederick Myers. Myers read Jekyll and Hyde in early 1886, as soon as it appeared. And after a brief note of congratulation to the author, then sent Stevenson two sets of remarkably detailed notes in which he urged Stevenson to make minor corrections 
to bring the Gothic novel into line with contemporary psychological research and thus secure its status as a masterpiece. It shows that almost immediately the open matrix of Stevenson's fiction ensnared psychologists to extract um, the case from its ludic literary flame, frame and demand it conform to the protocols of evidential science. And Myers kept writing to him and kept writing to him saying, I notice you haven't done those corrections yet. Please get on with those corrections. Stevenson's response to Myers, typically earnest request, is a delightful evasion. It's one of my favorite author letters, actually. Although he later wrote from Samoa to Myers, giving him a lengthy description of his experience of split consciousness during fever states, a letter which found its way in full into Meyer's magnum opus, The Subliminal Consciousness. We also know that Meyer sent Stevenson a copy of his essay, Multiplex Personality, which appeared in the 19th century journal in the summer of 1886, so after Jekyll and Hyde. Stevenson claimed in an interview in 1893 that that was his first encounter with the idea of duplex or multiplex consciousness. In this piece, Myers detailed two French cases of double conscience or dédoublement de la personnalité, which had been circulating in psychological publications in France for 10 years. The cases of Felida X, an hysteric who alternated personalities between pro and antisocial cells for over 20 years under the very perplexed gaze of her doctor, Eugene Azam, and Louis V, a young man who multiplied a whole series of personalities with the encouragement of the 20-plus professional psychologists who studied him and attached electrodes to his genitals, are often taken to be the final secret inspiration for Jekyll and Hyde. In 2006, the critic Richard Jury traced the circulation of the stories of Felida X and Louis V through French psychological journals, although with enough self-awareness to realize that he would never find the single article that inspired Stevenson because, to quote him, there were just too many French scientific journals with too many articles touching on the unconscious. At almost exactly the same moment, Anne Stiles, in a very good essay, recovered the fact that the Cornhill magazine had published detailed summaries of the cases of Felida X, Louis V, and another alternating personality called Sergeant F in the late 1870s under the titles Have We Two Brains and Dual Consciousness. Styles, too, is careful to observe that even if there were, these were the psychological resources that fed into the heart of Jekyll and Hyde, Stevenson's framing, of course, ironizes any scientific authority that they may have carried. It's worth emphasizing, finally, that psychology was not confidently considered in the late 19th century a positive science. Instead, it remained a hybrid, speculative knowledge that sought authority from biology and neurology, yet was still worryingly close to the decidedly unempirical metaphysical thought. James Sully might have trained with Helmholtz in Germany, but never became a professional psychologist, being appointed instead to a chair in the philosophy of mind and logic at University College London. 
Frederick Myers, although an active colleague with leading French and German pioneers of experimental psychodynamic psychology, remained a gentleman amateur throughout his life. His tireless collection of evidence of traces of the subliminal consciousness across thousands of pages was dedicated to finding the clinching empirical proof that trance states, dreams, or hallucinations existed on a continuum that would stretch to fully supernatural powers. He started with trance states and double personalities, but these only pointed the way towards subliminal powers that included the ability to project psychic energy across vast distances of space in the form of what he called veridical phantasms, the power to communicate telepathically, a term that Myers himself coined in 1882, and ultimately the ability of entranced mediums to communicate subliminally below the threshold with the surviving psychic traces of the dead. In the 1920s, the avant-garde poet André Breton pro proclaimed that the Surrealists were most indebted in their explorations of psychic automatism, not to Freud, but to Frederick Myers. Breton called Myers' work a Gothic psychology. No wonder then that Myers responded so immediately to Stevenson's subliminal genius, as he saw it, the involuntary Gothic gnome of Jekyll and Hyde, the book appeared in a field whose distribution of knowledge between the two cultures was very different from our own. The Gothic may have been psychologized, but psychology too could also be thoroughly Gothic. Thank you. Thank you very much for leading us with such a single focus on the <laughs> complex and multiple uh, uses that Jekyll and Hyde has been put to. Uh, we have time for a few questions. Uh, as you see, we're recording tonight's event, uh, so we're going to send someone up to you with a microphone. <laughs> so if that's going to be a problem, don't ask a question. Because uh, <laughs> you will be recorded for posterity. Um, I'll put everyone else. <laughs> so uh, does anyone have a question? I'll put you all off now. You're all yeah, exactly. There's one yes? there. Um, this, this may be a very raw and crude question. I'm not a Stevenson scholar, although I'm very fond of his, some of his poetry. But um, was there any... Um, I, I've always, you know, in my uh, homemade amateur way, connected the story of... Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, partly with the 18th century Edinburgh character Deacon Brodie. And um, there are also other um, kind of vague connections that um, this dualism had a particular Scottish significance, the division of heart and head and uh, the old Scotland and now the new North Britain and the old town in Edinburgh and the new town and a more rational world, a more kind of, sure. and so on. So many things sure. split, you know, it's, I think in Scottish literary criticism, this, this populist idea of dissociation of heart and, sure. yeah. and, and mind was quite popular. I think Edwin Muir took it up and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, are there any 
connections with Stevenson there? Uh, well, there's a, there's a vast uh, literature on, on that and on you know, Stevenson's inevitable um, influence of Calvinism on him, but also the Gothic tradition of the double being associated very particularly with that, um, that religious theological psychology. So he knew and wrote quite a bad um, play about Deacon Brodie. Um, he um, was, was very aware, of, obviously, of someone like James Hogg and the persecutory double and so on. So that's a, it's a kind of very, very established um, critical uh, area that you can... Uh, and, and Scottish scholars, people who know about Scottish writing, um, have written very, very detailed um, work on that. Um, so I felt I didn't need to necessarily touch on that because I think that, that, that's been quite well established. But, um, but you're right. I mean, that's absolutely intrinsic to what... Um, Stevenson understood himself, I think, to be doing too. And not just that, but also the descriptions that he made of, of Edinburgh itself, you know, high and low town and the, the sort of split psychology, if you like, of how he lived his life in, in Edinburgh. And um, depending on where you talk about Jekyll and Hyde, uh, it depends on whether you see it actually as set in London at all, or in a sense a sort of psychic version of Edinburgh, in fact. Um, thanks for... Um, one, of, one other area where Stevenson comes up a lot, and Jekyll and Hyde specifically, is in uh, legal literature. Uh, specifically, yeah, right. Jekyll and Hyde is about 50 years after the McNaughton Rule, um, which creates mental illness as, an as a way to avoid culpability for crime. Sure. Um, and there's a lot of literature about whether Stevenson's representing someone who's evil or someone who's mad. Right. And um, wondering, based on your reading of some of these psychologists, if you could comment at all on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting area, in, and particularly in... Um, uh, I did quite a bit of work on legal cases to do with the, the origins of trauma, so the idea that you might have uh, a psychological injury as opposed to a physical injury. Uh, inevitably, everything always comes down to money, doesn't it? And that's what it's about. It's about um, train companies trying to argue that um, they don't have liability for psychological uh, traumas because there is no physiological proof of, of what happened. And there are a whole sequence of, um, uh, of cases to do with that running through the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, uh, too. And then there was this moment in the late 1880s, so a little bit after, actually, um, Stevenson published, of um, there were rival theories of hypnotic suggestion at that time. Some people like um, Charcot, the famous French uh, Parisian neurologist, argued that only degenerates would ever be susceptible to hypnosis because everybody, if you were healthy, you had a strong will and could resist it. But there was another school called the Nancy School who believed that, that suggestion was universal, that you could actually, anyone could experience that. Uh, 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 and, and be forced in a way, controlled by another person, by another self in themselves, as it were. So around about 1890, there were some very interesting legal cases um, where defences, uh, this happened in Paris, a defence was made that uh, a woman didn't commit a murder, in fact, because she wasn't in control of herself. She was being controlled by an evil mesmerist at a distance. She lost the case. Um, but there, there is that, and it, it came back again in legal cases to do with multiple personality disorder. I mean, there were many famous cases in the 1980s of defences against shoplifting, for example, saying, well, that wasn't me, that was Alter Self 4, who really likes shoes. Um, I have no memory of that, so I'm not responsible. So that sort of thing, that, that, uh, they lost the case too. 
Um, so that sort of sense of, of, of the legal entwining with psychology is absolutely crucial um, to, to understand. All of those really key psychologists were writing for legal um, uh, and, and also appearing in legal cases all the time. That was one of the areas of their expertise. Um, I just I don't know if this is really well articulated, so my apologies, but you mentioned uh, sort of uh, almost contemporary uh, or, or contemporary reports um, of Jekyll and Hyde in psychological articles within the last sort of five, ten years. Uh, and one of the things I've always found interesting is the sort of cultural evolution of representations of Jekyll and Hyde in cinema, graphic novels, uh, um, on stage, things sure. like that. And I was wondering whether there is some sort of... Um, uh, there is a mirroring of parallels in the kind of uh, cultural evolution and uh, and the representation in terms of psychological contemporary psychological. Sure. Articles. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there must be uh, there must be because um, it, psychologists also go to the cinema <laughs> uh, and they they also go to you know uh, see these kind of stage uh, versions of Jekyll and Hyde and how they kind of get transformed and transposed. Um, and, and you know, very very rapidly, you do get. Uh, I think it's something like 1913. Someone might know the first uh, Ms. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde kind of um, film being being made, and so on. So that kind of sense of twisting and and thinking about it in different sorts of ways. Um, I was really struck with doing the research for this uh, of the importance of the um, uh, Richard Loeb case in 1924 and the the the, the way that he was portrayed. And that is something, I think, to do with the consolidation of that, of that Jekyll and Hyde motif in cinema. And that's a very sort of inevitably quite brutal routinization of it, given the length of, of, um, of short films at that point. So I think there is something there that would be really interesting to explore um, with much more kind of concrete detail. But I'm sure it's the case that they do partake of that sort of cultural shift all the time. Absolutely. Right at the end, right on the back. Uh, hello, can you, can you hear me? Uh, I'm not used to speaking into a microphone. I'm sorry, I came in a bit late. I got my timing wrong, so I didn't <laughs> hear all of your lecture. You may well have touched on this. One thing I'm interested in Stevenson about is, um, for example, his travels with his donkey mm. in France his attempt to what, self, be self-sufficient in Silverado and so on. Would you say possibly he was trying, uh, attempting a psychotherapeutic <laughs> cure for himself? That's an interesting question. I mean, famously, wasn't it Henley who said um, that, what, that, that one Stevenson uh, went to America and another person came back? Um, a way of digging at Fanny Stevenson again, um, but there is a uh, there, there is a sense, obviously, that he was um, right from the start, from you know um, all the writing about going south and looking for cure, and uh, all of those sorts of um, articles. He was kind of aware, I think, that there was a that there was a psychological component to his physiological um, difficulties, um, and something that he uh, I think did explore with other. Um, uh, writers like S Simmons and so on about whether and what kind of environment uh, would induce a certain kind of uh, 
psychological health, I suppose. So I think he does, he, his raving is clearly a, a psychological displacement activity. Yes. I, I'm thinking that he might have wanted to get away from society, you know, and to sort his own mind out. Sure. Sure. Well, I think it was interesting getting away from a certain society. Um, so I, but he was he was uh, quite interested in exploring alternative, bohemian, if you like, kind of um, cells as well, which meant that he had to get away from here. <laughs> <laughs> from what you've said that the later psychological and uh, popular treatment of the novel Jekyll and Hyde has been uh, along the context of a splitting of personality mm. or two personalities residing within the same person and there's been less uh, seeing of the book as a dramatization of different components of personality right. more along the Freudian idea of superego and id for example yeah. would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I, th I think that's fair enough. So there is a, there, there is a sense in which, um, uh, because these are very, very different um, psychological narratives of, of, of the self, and um, it, the, Freud's brutal attempts to suppress other versions of, of that psychology are really quite extraordinary. He's constantly rewriting the history of psychoanalysis in order to knock out the opposition all the time. Um, uh, and so, you know, someone like Janet disappears, but then gets recovered... Uh, in the 1970s and 1980s and becomes the kind of crucial figure for multiplicity, for thinking about dissociation, which is not about a layered, um, you know, Freud's metaphor of, of archaeological layers, so everyone has an unconscious and so on, um, and a much more about a, a series of split cells or egos that, that, that multiply out, much easier, actually, model to understand and to popularise. Um, and, and very, very suggestive and very kind of uh, allusive and so on. People pick up on it very fast. So I think it is the case that that becomes much more emphasised in that particular kind of psychological literature um, in a way that I think the American Psychiatric Association particularly became very alarmed by because it was so suggestive, actually, um, that it kind of exploded and then had to be suppressed and put back in its box. Um, and the way that... Uh, what's really interesting is the way that people seem to think themselves generically into these things. So in the, in the 80s and the 90s, uh, 1980s and uh, 1990s, um, there was a kind of, um, there was a science fiction version of multiple personality, which is that um, I've recovered a memory of being abducted by aliens. 10% um, of the American population have been abducted by aliens, the same percentage. Um, actually, that's probably quite believable by now. Um, <laughs> But on the other hand, there's a kind of gothic version of it. So we got that, all of that bizarre stuff about satanic abuse. Um, there are people still in jail for satanic abuse, although there's never been a single empirical proof that there was a, a coven. But again, in about 1990, it was claimed regularly that 50,000 fetuses in America were being harvested by satanic groups. And that sort of sense of, of a genre narrative overtaking uh, a psychological kind of treatment. Um, and, you know, reading transcripts of people going into hypnosis with 
um, hypnotists who believe in alien abduction. You can see them. You can see them on the page being led towards that. I know you can see an image of, a of your father, but look harder. It's actually a four-foot-tall gray alien from Zeta Reticuli, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah, so it is. Um, that, that sort of sense of being led, suggested towards that um, is really kind of crucial. So those sorts of multiple selves, much easier, much faster to grasp than, than actually the really hard theoretical stuff of um, Freud's bonkers idea of the unconscious, the dynamic unconscious. So yeah, I agree. It has become that. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to ask uh, about the, um, the idea of Jekyll and Hyde as father and son. Mm. Um, because certainly the dis Stevenson's description of yeah. Dr. Jekyll is remarkably like his own father. Right. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll's house is remarkably like uh, the Stevenson house, which mm. the gentleman in front of me is living in. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, the whole idea of uh, Stevenson had great trouble getting a key out of his father to be allowed to come in late at night, and he used to flit it and out through the back door, which sure. looked nothing like the front door. Um, and I just wondered whether, sort of in, in, in sort of psychological theory, there's, there's anything useful to be explored in the whole idea of, of Hyde being a reaction against the father. Oh, well, um, take it. And, and embodying yeah. the authoritarian, authoritarian moral view of the way you were supposed to behave in, in Victoria sure. and Edinburgh, which Stevenson himself found very restrictive. Yeah, very and, and, and writes very evocatively about. So, yeah, yeah and, it, and explicitly in the text, it talks about the relationship of uh, Jekyll and Hyde as one of father and son. Yeah. Uh, and I think there is kind of quite a lot of, um, I got quite excited when I was um, doing the edition of thinking about um, one of the um, scientists I, that I mentioned, psychologist Henry Maudsley, talked about um, the dissolution of personality as being an unkinding uh, or unkinning actually, so that, so that this kind of unbounding of familial sort of dynamics and familial relationships uh, was struck there. So obviously we have uh, it's a narrative of resistance to um, strict patriarchal Calvinist authority that's, that's demanding certain structures. And then um, Hyde is one of the discontents of, of civilization. He's one of the kind of eruptions out of that patriarchal dominance. There's lots and lots of um, theory about Gothic that argues that, that talks about this as, a, as an eruption against patriarchal authority. So Stevenson fits. Um, a lot of your uh, discourse this evening has been about placing Jekyll and Hyde in the process of describing mental conditions. Um, it has sometimes struck me that it is as much a discourse about method and process, um, harking back in some sense to the idea of disordered science and science gone wrong, uh, but also possibly marking a waste, a, way, uh, a, a waymark between the tradition of self-experimentation and kind of mm. empirical observation with a more sci scientifically or objectively based mode of inquiry. Has that been part of the, um, the... Is that something which has occurred to others in the field? That's a, very, that's a really good question, actually, a very interesting question. Um, what would I say? I think that um, the thing that strikes me about this and that, um, that, that I realised actually, of course, as I finished, is that I didn't make a single quotation 
from Strange Case of George Jekyll and Hyde in their talk. And that's because nobody else does either. Uh, and uh, it's as if the, the, the first thing that you talk about with teaching that, that is the structure of it. You know, it's told backwards and it's inside a sequence of Chinese boxes and therefore it's very, very difficult to, um, to take the assertions of the full statement of the case uh, without thinking about how it's framed and how it's controlled and how it's therefore destabilised in all kinds of ways. Not interested in that. Uh, the psychological kind of discourse or, or historians of science aren't interested in that. And I, I kind of had a moment of in, amazing moment of insight um, talking to uh, a psychologist about the Gothic recently um, when I just mentioned in passing that um, uh, I'd been reading Peter Ackroyd uh, and his Gothic fictions about London. And um, she stopped me and just said, you do know that Peter Ackroyd is a complete liar, don't you? He's a complete liar. He says in the front of his book that it's a, it's a real document. It isn't, you know. It's complete. And you just think... Do you not understand genre? And actually, the answer is no, you don't, because you don't have the kind of training or the understanding of the frames that, of, that, that the Gothic is always, has always been fictional documents that are totally destabilised and fragmentary and don't fit together, like, like, like this. And people forget that reading. They, they, they just go straight to the case as if it is a case, um, and as if it's a stabilised... Uh, document that you can kind of extract a kind of treatment from. So obviously, you know, he just needs to go to a person-centered therapist, and he'll be fine. Um, and that sort of, um, you know, and it's quite easy to, to to make fun of that. But on the other hand, it's a really striking. It's not a misreading. It's a striking reading because that's what's happening in this. If you move to another discipline, that's what's happening. Um, so it's it it's a really it, the strange case is a very strange case of that of that literary framework. Disappearing, I think. Did I, does that sort of answer your question? It's a really good question, actually. Um, Slightly different than expected. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's bad. Thank you very much for your questions. Thought we had mm, some really questions. outstanding questions. Yeah, this they were year. very so good. Please yeah. come again next year. So we're just uh, <laughs> planning uh, number five for next year. Uh, thank you also again to the Royal Society of Edinburgh who have funded this event, and particularly thank you to Roger Luckhurst for not only a fantastic talk but also taking so many. Great questions. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Roger. You're welcome.